Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so this week's portion is Behalotah. Say that a few times, right? But I, I felt like during worship, very much like what was being said here, about how God is with us and it's well with our soul and He's working out things on our behalf. And a few things that struck me were the songs that talked about God doing great things. He's done great things. And He's never shied away from doing something that was too difficult or too great. Because it's not for Him. And And then the other song said that he's never failed me yet. And how true is that? He's never failed us yet. And that's tied into the words we were talking about here. And I think it's a key aspect of this week's portion is that he knows the path we're on. He knows our failures, where we've been. And he's going to take us through because he's going to be the one who goes before us and also comes along as our rear guard and sends his presence in our midst. This week's Haftarah, the reading from the prophets, is from the book of Zechariah. And I want to touch on that because it concludes speaking with God's spirit being the one that overcomes But for what's going on in in the book of Zechariah, if we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the scripture says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now what's happening here is that this is the time of the exile. And many who have been taken into exile have not been walking according to the commands. And according to the sages, what was specifically taking place here is that Uh, Joshua, the high priest, his sons had married foreigners and he hadn't done anything about it. And as a result, his garments were soiled. Yet he was in the midst of exile, in the midst of this physical and spiritual um, loss, if you will. And, And so God looks at him and says, yes, I see the failures, but is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now I'm going to lift off his soiled garments, I'm going to place fresh garments upon him. And then if we were to continue reading in Zechariah 3, he begins to say, if you will follow my commands, then I will give you movement among the celestial beings. And what he's saying is like this, the past 
The past is, is done away with. Going forward, walk according to my ways, and I will bless you and I will anoint you for a purpose. A purpose to go forward and to help rebuild and reestablish Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up here in Zechariah 4, starting in verse 1. The scripture says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold, with a, bo with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward to the top stone, to the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it, So what the people had before them is a great task. It's to go back to the land and to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. It's for Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, to go and establish his kingship and for Joshua the high priest to reestablish the worship of the king. And God says, it's not by your might nor by your power, but by my spirit that I'll accomplish it. And what we have today, in whatever it is that we face, we have to recognize that it's God's Spirit that's going to go before us, lead us in the way, and give us the victory in what He set us out to do. And, and that's what we find as we begin reading this week's portion. As we enter into this week's portion, I think it's good to take a look at where have we been. The children of Israel have been at Mount Sinai for almost a full year. They had arrived on the first day of the third month after coming out of Egypt. And now, as we're reading in this portion, the children of Israel set out from Sinai on the 20th day of the second month. Okay, so they're 10 days short of one full year in, at Mount Sinai. And they're heading out on what is supposed to be an 11-day journey to the Promised Land, as Deuteronomy 1-2 describes it. If all would go well, then they would arrive on the first day of the third month, one year after they had arrived at Sinai before. And, of course, coming to the land, they would have come to Kadesh Barnea, and they would have been ready to go and take the land. So my theory is that they would have renewed the covenant and then entered in to begin the conquest at Shavuot, much like they did later on when they came in and began the conquest but rather at Passover that time. <clears throat> but along with this, the tabernacle has been uh, constructed, it's been erected and dedicated, which last week we talked about some of the inauguration ceremony with the gifts being brought by all the tribes. And as this week's portion opens up, it starts out with instructions for the menorah, which is a little interesting because the menorah is already in place and the instructions for the menorah were already given in Leviticus. So it seems a little interesting, but I, I, think, I think it has something to do with the menorah being the light of the world 
and God's illumination to His people. And even a gift that's given to the people as part of the service. But we go in and start out with the menorah, and then we move into the consecration of the Levites, which were taken in place of the firstborn. We then move on to talking about the second Passover. If someone were to miss the first Passover by either being contaminated uh, through touching a corpse and could not purify themselves in time, or if they were on the road trying to make it to Jerusalem, but they were too far and they weren't going to be able to make it, then they could participate in the second Passover. We aren't going to go into great detail of the second Passover, but I think it's just such a beautiful picture of God saying, here's the second chance. You have a second chance. If I cleanse you from death, you'll have the second shot at this Passover. Then we move on and speak of the God, God's presence on the tabernacle and how the glory cloud, when it would rest, the children of Israel would camp, and when it would lift, they would travel. And then in Numbers 10, there's a lot of detail about how the, how the camps would travel. And the way it would work is that trumpets would be sounded, and Judah and the tribes on the east would begin to travel. And then after that would come the, uh, the, the Levites who were carrying the tabernacle itself. Then you would follow with the camps that were to the south, Reuben and those who were with them. And then the Kohathites would come carrying the ark and all the holy instruments of the tabernacle. And then Ephraim from the west would follow. And then the tribes from the north would follow, which was Dan. And it would be this progression moving through the wilderness with God there at the center. God's presence being at the center of their camps, given that it was, it was coming along between the first six tribes and the last six tribes. But one thing I wanted to note on when they're traveling and Dan and, Dan and the tribes of the north begin to follow in Numbers 10, verse 25, the scripture says, Then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies. And over their company was Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. Okay? Now what stood out to me here is that when it speaks of Dan coming as the rear guard, that rear guard is the word, it's from the root word asaf, which is to gather. And when I thought about, in the past when I thought about the Lord being the rear guard, you know, he's the one who goes before you and leads you on the way and he's your rear guard. In my mind, I always thought about one who's standing in the back and defending you, like who's got your back from any kind of attackers that are coming your way. But the rear guard with this root meaning of the gatherer, it's the one, that's, the one who's coming behind and helping those who are falling along the way, gathering in the people so they don't fall behind as they're following God. That's a whole new connotation to think about the God who goes before, the God who acts as your rear guard and the one who has his presence in your midst. He's leading you on the way. He has his presence with you, and he's also helping you as you get weak and as you fall along the way to help you stay along, to walk the course. And so when we read about even this in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52 is talking about a salvation 
In Isaiah 52, 11 through 13, the scripture says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted. And then we, we see the same idea of the rear guard in Isaiah, Isaiah 58, 8, okay, where he says, Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And just this picture of God going before and having a rear guard is also what we find in the journeys in the wilderness. In fact, if we were to look, it's in Numbers 10, Verse 34 is where we'll start on this one. Okay. Actually, we'll start in verse 33. Numbers 10, 33. They journeyed from the mountain of the Lord a three-day distance, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeyed before them a three-day distance to search out for them a resting place. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they journeyed from the camp. When the ark would journey, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your foes be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it rested, he would say, Reside tranquilly, O Lord, among the myriad thousands of Israel. So here you have the Lord going before to find the path for the children. He had his presence with them in their midst, and he had Dan coming as the rear guard. Now, when we look at this and we say the ark of the Lord traveled in front of the camps a three-day distance to search out for them a resting place. But we also read, which actually we didn't read, but if you read it earlier in Numbers 10, it says that the ark travels in between the camps. And so... There's a, a problem here. How did the ark go before the children of Israel, and how did it go in their midst? Now, I'm not the first one who would recognize this. The sages saw it, and there's not agreement over what was taking place, surprisingly. <laughs> that we can't agree on everything. I just I don't know how that works. But so there's an ark that went before, and there's an ark that went in the midst. And according to Rashi, there were two arks. According to Ramban, there were not two arks. But according to Rashi, there were two arks. And the reasoning with this is that when Moses came down from the mountain back at the sin of the golden calf, and he saw the children of Israel dancing before the calf, he smashed the tablets that he was carrying. And God said to him, carve out for yourself new tablets and make yourself an ark of wood. Bring the tablets up here and I'm going to write the words on these tablets and you will place them in this wooden ark. So Moses had made an ark. And according to tradition, what was placed in that ark originally was the broken tablets and the two new tablets. Now then, when you go forward, and the children of Israel were creating the tabernacle and all its instruments, and Bezalel and Aholiab were making 
the vessels. Bezalel created the golden ark. And then the tablets, the two tablets that were intact were placed within that golden ark. Now, so what happened with the original wooden one? Either it went away or it continued to be used just in a different aspect. And so, according to Rashi, it was the wooden ark that carried the broken tablets that went out a three-day journey ahead of the camp to find the way for them. But the golden ark that had the two tablets that were intact was carried there in the midst of the camps. So, whether you agree with one or the other, that's not the point. What is the point is, when I'm looking at that story, I see the two arcs having significance. One in the ark that contains, that is wooden and humble and contains the broken tablets is a picture of Yeshua, our Messiah, who took on flesh, who emptied himself of the glory he had and was broken for us. The very word made flesh that was broken, who goes before us to prepare a way for us and says, I'm coming back. And then there's the ark this golden and glorious with the tablets intact and whole where the glory cloud, the Shekinah of God rests over it in the midst of the camp which is a picture too of the Spirit that fills us and walks with us as we go along this journey following Yeshua our Messiah through the wilderness to the place that He's going and preparing for us. And when we, uh, when we look at this portion and we, we think about everything that's being built up, it's that God's taken a people unto himself. He's placed his presence in their midst with his tabernacle. And he said, now I'm going to take you to the promised land. It's an 11-day journey here from Sinai where you've been camped with me for the past year. I'm taking you on this journey. And as we go on this journey, you need to remember where you've been as well as where you're headed. And so when we look at the stories that were being told to this point, we saw the consecration of the Levites in place of the firstborn. Well, that comes from the story of the golden calf. Because it was at the sin of the golden calf where the Levites stood for God. And God said, okay, now I'm going to take the Levites to be priests unto me in place of the firstborn. And then he reminds us of Passover. He reminds of his, of his presence on the tabernacle and how he, it's his desire that he be the center of our lives in, every, in everywhere we go, whether we're camping or whether we're traveling along the way. And he says, I've given you my light, the light of the menorah, the light of the world, to be with you. And that God's going to go before us. He's established his presence in the midst and he's set up a rear guard for us. So he's telling us all these things. But things are about to take a turn. Because we're about to come and read Numbers 11. And in Numbers 11... The first verse says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. 
And now this begins a lot of trials that occur in the wilderness. But up to now, it's all been going really well. I mean, there's been, tra- there's been challenges along the way. But right now, before they head out, they've got the tabernacle erected. They've just gone through a great ceremony to inaugurate it. Things are looking good. And there's actually a division in the scriptures that we don't see when we read our English translations. But if we were to read it in the Hebrew, we would see something very strange that took place here at the end of Numbers 10. Verses 30, Numbers 10, verses 35 and 36 are offset in the Hebrew text by upside-down noons. So the letter noon, so, so the text is written, verse 34 ends, there's a space, there's an upside-down noon, verse 35 and 36 are written, there's another space, an upside-down noon is written, and then you enter into Numbers 11. Now, verses 35 and 36 that were offset is when Moses, or when it says, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So the ark, where God's presence was, was the central focus here. Okay? When it would journey, the people would follow. When it would stop, the people would rest. That was the desire. That was the goal. That's the hope. And, every, and the stage was set for it, but something was about to happen. So the sages said that this is actually its own book. These two verses set apart are its own book. But it really marks a turning point And what's going to take place? So in Numbers 11, let's read the story, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to walk through some parallels of this story to unpack it a little bit more. So let's start out in Numbers 11, verses 1 through 9. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because of the fire because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went, at, went about and gathered it, and ground it in handmills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes based with, baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And I'm going to continue reading before we come back and talk about various aspects here. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, 
everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor, and why have I not found favor in your sight, so that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. So when we read this passage... Does it, does it remind you of a prior story? And it may in a certain way. So let's, let's go in and look at a few things. One, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God was leading them towards Sinai, to the place where he was going to take them into covenant with him. And along the way, they were crying out because they didn't have food. And so he told them, I'm going to give you quail, in the evening and in the morning, you're going to receive manna from heaven. And so, and in fact, God's, God calls it bread from heaven in Exodus 32, 32. He said, I'm going to rain down upon you bread from heaven. And so they get up in the mornings and they collect the manna and they eat it. God's giving them all the provision they need. And now, as they're on their way to the promised land, they're still getting the manna. God's still giving them this daily provision. But they're beginning to say, you know what? This just isn't cutting it. I wish I had more. I wish I had more than just this manna. So there's a rejection of the manna that's taking place at this point. They're rejecting the manna and wishing they had something else. And what does Moses do? Moses begins to cry out to God and say, why are you doing this to me? If this is the way you're going to treat me, then just go ahead and kill me. Let's have this over and done with because I don't want to see my evil. And I believe that's what he said specifically. Let me flip to this. Okay, yeah, he said in verse 12, did I conceive this people or give birth to it? You say, carry them in your bosom. And then he goes forward in verse 15. He says, if this is how you're going to deal with me, then kill me now. If I have found favor in your eyes and let me not see my evil. When I read this, I was wondering, why is Moses' reaction different than it was after the sin of the golden calf? And the sin of the golden calf that's not what Moses said. He did say, wipe me out. But he, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't all the same. And I think what, what we have is that we have a parallel, a scriptural par parallel that's taking place, but a parallel where the corresponding components aren't the same, but they're opposites. Okay? So if we were to take a look in Exodus 33, 12 through 14, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, here Moses is saying, if I've found favor, show me your ways that I may know you. But in Numbers 10, he said, or Numbers 11, sorry guys. He says, if, you've, if I've found favor in your eyes, let me not see my evil. Okay, so in Exodus, he's saying, if I've found favor, let me see your faithfulness. Let me see your character. Let me see who you are. And over here, he's saying, if I've found favor, don't let me see my evil. Now, that's one, that's one opposite. Again, he's asked for himself to be wiped out. He's asked, who is going to go with us? How is this going to, to happen? And there was another aspect where he says, why have you caused me to carry this people? This is Numbers eleven twelve, where he says, you said to me, carry them in your bosom. He's like, why? I can't carry these people. But you can. Now back at the sin of the golden calf, when Moses was beginning to intercede for the children of Israel, and he says, Lord, please forgive their sin. The word that Moses used was a different word than forgive. It was carry or lift up their sins. So when he was interceding for them, he was beseeching God to carry the children of Israel, to lift their sin off of them and to be the one who carries them forward, to be the one who fulfills the promise to bring them into the camp. And so rather than, the way, the way I see this is that rather than Moses stepping back and saying, okay, God, I give up in Numbers 11, it's him interceding for Israel again, but from a different perspective and saying, God, look, I can't do it, but you can. Remember how you said you're going to carry the people. You're going to forgive them. You're going to bring them to the land and that your presence is going to go with us and give us rest. But now here in the wilderness, I can't do it, but you can. My weakness can't carry them, but your faithfulness can come through. And, and God says in both cases that he is going to be the one who does carry them forward. In Exodus 33, 14, that's where he says, my presence will go with you and give you rest. And in Numbers 11, his response to Moses when Moses says, if I found favor in your eyes, let me not see my evil. The next verse in Numbers eleven sixteen, The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk to you there. 
and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So God's answer to Moses is, you're not alone. I'm going to take of the spirit that I've placed on you, I'm going to increase it, and I'm going to place it on these 70. And together, y'all, by my spirit, will lead this people. Okay, so if we were to step back and say, what's, what's happening? The children of Israel have rejected God's provision of the bread from heaven, and they want something else. Moses begins to intercede on their behalf. Even though it doesn't really look like interceding, it's paralleling the intercession that he did back at the golden calf. And God says, I'm going to give you my spirit. Not just to you, but to the leaders of the congregation, of the community. And my presence, by my spirit, will go with you to, to bring about our plan and purpose and to bring you into the land. I think what's happening here is we're seeing a smaller picture of what then took place through the work of Yeshua, right? Because if we look at the parallel and say, okay, who is the bread that came down from heaven? Yeshua is the bread that came down from heaven, which is what he speaks of in John 6. He's the bread that came down from heaven, but was re rejected. We don't want this bread from heaven. But yet Yeshua was interceding for the children of Israel. And for those who believed, those who were faithful, God poured out his spirit on them at Pentecost. Now again, we have a reverse of what took place here in the wilderness compared to what took place at Pentecost. Because God took of his spirit that was on Moses and placed it upon the leaders who were faithful when it was the people who were grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. But now when you look at what took place through Yeshua at Pentecost, he'd been rejected by the leaders, he interceded through his own flesh and blood, and then God takes of the spirit that was upon Yeshua and pours it out on the disciples who were faithful, not on the leaders who were unfaithful. So you have a parallel between these two, just there are opposites along the way. But God pouring out his spirit upon the disciples after the death and resurrection of Yeshua was for the purpose of building up the kingdom and preparing a people who would then go following Yeshua, led by the spirit, to the place of the ultimate restoration. So it's kind of a, a neat parallel that we're, we're looking here at a significant turn indicated in the scriptures, followed by an event, a series of events taking place in the wilderness that parallels a future event that is also a turning point in the history of the restoration, both times involving the bread from heaven, the intercession and the outpouring of the Spirit. 
And as you, if you read throughout Numbers 11, you'll see that the story of this, the complaining people and the giving of the Spirit are interwoven. Right? We've read through, through half of the chapter. But as we go forward and continue to read, let's read in... Okay, let's continue. I'll pick back up in Numbers eleven sixteen. The Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And then in verse 18, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I but Moses said, The people among who I am. Sorry. I'm gonna jump back over here. The people to whom, whom I am are 600,000 are th- foot soldiers. Yet you say, I shall give them meat, and they shall eat for a month of days. Can sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them and suffice for them? Or if all the fish of the sea will be gathered for them, would it suffice for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the hand of the Lord limited? Now you will see whether my word comes to pass or not. Moses left and spoke the words of the Lord to the people, and he gathered 70 men from among the elders of the people, and he had them stand around the tent. The Lord descended in a cloud and spoke to him, and he increased some of the spirit that was upon him and gave it to the 70 men, the elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. Two men remained behind in the camp. The name of one one was Eldad, and the name of the second was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. They had been among the recorded ones, but they had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. The youth ran and told Moses, and he said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of Moses since his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord, Moses, incarcerate them. Moses said to him, Are you being zealous for my sake? Would that the entire people of the Lord could be prophets, if the Lord would but place his spirit upon them. If the Lord would just place his spirit upon them. So Moses desired that all would prophesy. That all would have the spirit upon them. And Yeshua told us that it's for our good that he was going away. Because the spirit would be poured out in his place. And Paul affirms Moses' thoughts in 1 Corinthians 14 as he speaks about the the superiority of prophecy and the purpose of it and the edification of the body. And he desired that all would prophesy. 
that all would prophesy because in that God's spirit and presence would dwell upon a people to bring about his vision and his purpose as a way of leading them and encouraging them along the way so they would not be lost. And this is a key aspect of it is that throughout the entire journey of the children of Israel, it was God's desire to give them all that they needed to be able to travel along the way, to go in and take hold of the inheritance and the promises that he had made to them. He gave them the light of the world. He gave them his Torah. He gave them bread from heaven and, and all the provision that they would need, the rains, even when they would enter the land, so that their land would grow and prosper and produce. Now in John 1, in John 1, verses 1 through 5, we see this aspect of God's provision. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has, not, or that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when Yeshua was here, He spoke to the children of Israel and, and explained that He is the bread that came down from heaven. In John 6, they said to Him, this is John 6, verse 30. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yeshua then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he continues on in verse 38. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. When Yeshua came, as we said earlier, He humbled Himself and emptied himself of glory, that he could go and do the Father's will, and that he does nothing of his own accord, but only what he hears the Father saying. And Yeshua is the one who's beheld the Father. 
in this week's portion, in Numbers 12, God says that He speaks to Moses face to face and not like He does with other prophets. He says, mouth to mouth do I speak to him in a clear vision and not in riddles. And before he told Aaron and Miriam the greatness of Moses and how God gives him revelation that is beyond what is normal prophecy, the scripture first introduced that Moses was exceedingly humble more than any person on the face of the earth. And that introduction of Moses being the most humble man on the face of the earth is actually what put Moses in the position whereby he could hear from God to a greater degree than any of the other prophets. Because what he had done is he had emptied himself of his own desire he had negated his own will in order just to be faithful in all of God's house. He didn't seek his own greatness. He sought God's greatness. He sought to do God's will at every turn. And it's because of that he was given this great revelation. So when we think about the outpouring of the Spirit and God's desire to speak with us, to and even Paul's desire that all would prophesy. At the core of it, there's a desire that all of us would humble ourselves as Yeshua humbled himself to say, it's not about me. Yes, what God has given me is important. God has given me everything I need for life and godliness and everything that I need to go forward and to accomplish the mission that he's given. But when I do it, it's so much more than just what I attain. It's God's kingdom being built along the way. And for God getting the glory at every turn. Moses demonstrated it in the wilderness. Yeshua demonstrated it throughout his whole life. And he calls us to walk in that as well. It's called, in the Hebrew, it's called Betul Hayesh. It's the annulment of the self. And it's not, it's, and as we talked last week, it's this humility, the annulment of the self is not a de denial of the gifts God's given us. It's about attributing what God has given us to the right place and for the right purposes. It's saying, yes, God has gifted each of, each of us uniquely. And then we walk in that. Not denying those gifts, but saying these, these gifts are for a greater purpose than just for my accolades. Right, And as we do that, as we annul the self, our own ego, and we lay that down, what we do is we make more room within our spirit for the Spirit of God to move and for Him to fill us full. And the more that we make room for Him and, and the fullness of His Spirit, the more we are able to engage with Him and hear Him. So, so we can say, I see where you're going, I know where you're going. I know you're going before me to prepare a place, Lord. Give me revelation of what that is. And now let me follow, let me hear, and go along with you, your spirit guiding me, and knowing that as I'm walking, walking along the way, 
but you're there as my rear guard to strengthen, to comfort, to, to carry along. The Lord goes and he carries us along the way. And as we go, we are going to encounter trials and we're going to encounter times when things aren't optimal, right? But that's part of even what this portion was leading into is things that aren't optimal. There had been the sin of the golden calf. There had been occasions where people weren't able to come and celebrate the Passover at the time that God had said to. But God provided a way. And God would lift his people and carry them by his spirit. So for us, the main things are to remember that he will be with you. He will be with you. He'll go before you. He'll place his spirit in you and he'll go as your rear guard. He knows where you've been. And he knows where he's taking you. So may the Lord give us vision. May he give us direction. And may he strengthen us as we continue to keep our eyes fixed on him. And really the eyes fixed on him and directing all of ourselves and all of our gifts for his glory actually comes right back around to the beginning of this week's portion. In Leviticus, excuse me, Numbers 8, we started out in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you kindle the lamps toward the face of the menorah, shall the seven lamps cast light. Aaron did so. Toward the face of the menorah, he kindled its lamps as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what does that mean? When you kindle the lamps toward the face of the menorah, shall the seven lamps cast light. So the menorah is a seven-branched candlestick. It has a center stem, and from that center stem on each side, there are three arms that come out. Three on each side for a total of seven with the one in the middle. And all three are connected to the, to the one. And so the scripture here says that all the lamps shall cast their light towards that center candle. That center candle is known as the shamash, the servant candle. It's the one that stayed lit according to true tradition all the time. And we know, well, within the symbolic aspects of this, that center candle, the servant candle, is the light of Yeshua. He's the one that we stay connected to so that we can bear fruit. He's the one who is our source and our strength. He's the one who brings us completion, right? You have six branches connected to the center. Six branches is the number, six is the number of man. And when man is connected to the one, that makes seven and brings completion. The light of the menorah, each of the lamps were to cast their light towards the center one, always fixed on the center candle. We're to cast our light on the one who is our Messiah, the one who is the ultimate servant, the
the one who gives us light, gives us hope, and brings us to completion, the one who laid himself down for us and is that bread from heaven. So may we keep our eyes directed on him, remain attached to him, and have our light shine forth that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Amen. Anybody have anything that you wanted to share? I've seen uh, humility as giving the right value. You know, sometimes it, it can be misunderstood and, and people can become doormats and they accept all kinds of abuses that they have no right to, to receive. But humility is, is giving the correct value. And, and Moshe always understood that he was below God, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when the master stood before Pilate and even, even the high priest, even though he submitted to their authority, he was not fearful. He was not, he knew he stood in the right. Um, when he spoke to Pilate, he answered truthfully, right? He didn't. He didn't take on what he didn't already know and agree to taking on what he was going to take on, right? He knew where he was going. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't fearful and he knew where his place was. Um, I, when God created us, he created us with an identity, right? I don't think that he wants us to lose that. What he wants, the, the self-annulment to be is our base desires the flesh that, that we are born in and cursed, right? The flesh is cursed. And so uh, I just wanted to, you know, put that out there, right? The identity that he created us, that it should not disappear. Right. That is the vessel that brings his, you know, the vessel that he uses to push his light out into the world. Mm-hmm. Rather, it is our base desires that we must put into submission to the identity that he created us in, right? And, and that's one thing I've always strived to teach my kids is their identity, and I've heard that in many things, and in, even in the secular realm, they've, they've stumbled across this, that the identity will control our path. And if we can remember identity, like Moshe remembered his identity, right, in God, that we won't lose our, our path. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the, yeah, humility is not one being a doormat or not being valuable. It is having the value of the identity that God's given you and then walking in that for his glory, not for your own, but still using, operating in what he has given to its fullness, realizing the potential. Yeah. Amen. Anyone else? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that nothing's too difficult for you and that you have always been faithful. We thank you, Lord, that you know the path that we've been on and you are going before us to prepare a way. Thank you, Lord, that even when we stumble, even when times are difficult, You were there as our rear guard. Lord, that you would strengthen us along the way, that you would give us encouragement. 
And when we need to hear things over and over again, may you keep repeating them. And may we commune with you, Lord. May we hear your voice and draw closer to you day by day. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for your plans and purposes. And we bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.